1: Ah, we live in interesting times, don't we? Right? This is not the time to be a sissy in the moral sense. And I hope you have a strong stomach for, uh, you know, just current events. I got some doozies to share with you today, as well as some encouragement and, of course, you know, resources for people who want to engage in wrong thinking, perhaps even revel in it. My job is made easier by the support of my great sponsors, which include the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, lifesavingfood.com, Food.com, dot College.org, Sewing and Quilting dot HSLAMO.com, and dot which actually is com. That's Dixie Chiropractic. All right, having said that, oh, what a strange world we are living in today. I just, uh, I've been catching wind of, of, you know, again, I, I hate to beat the drum on this every day, but it is Pride Month, and you know, this is something that's on a lot of people's minds, and apparently there's a big Pride event taking place in uh, northern Idaho, in Coeur d'Alene, to be exact, and it's drawing a lot of interest in that, uh, well, first of all, it's it's going to be a big event. Bring the kids. The Satanists are going to be there. I guess that's that's a thing now. The the Church of Satan is now affiliated with, with some of these these pride events. I don't know. Has anybody read the Old Testament? Because I don't know if that ever worked out well, at least for, you know, th- those who believe in, in biblical things. But there are Christian warriors, Christian soldiers, so to speak, that have said, hey, we can't allow this stuff to come into our community unchallenged. And so they're wanting to go in to confront, you know, these uh, celebrants at their event and on the one hand look i i get it this isn't the kind of thing where you just just curl up and <clears throat> pretend it isn't happening and you know it's all going to go away at some point um, th- things have been dialed up considerably in terms of, of cultural decline and this is just one symptom okay this is not the ultimate cause of it but it's just one symptom of the kind of deep decline that our culture is in It's been seen in other cultures throughout the world, usually preceding, you know, the collapse of a particular culture. But, hey, don't let that worry you. But I have a concern I want to share. I just want to get this out there in the open. And that is, you know these events bring out um, some very maladjusted individuals. And I'm not talking about necessarily even the LGBT folks themselves. It's the Antifa types. It's the social justice warriors who are... um, I, I'm sorry. I just I can't think of a nice way to say this. Are people with very broken spirits and who thrive on conflict? They want something to overreact to. That's how they draw attention to themselves. So I'm going to just sound a word of caution here. You know, for those who may be tempted to to go to this event, I look. I understand you want to stand up for truth, and all I'm going to ask you to do is consider: Is there a smarter way to stand for? what is right, than to go invite a bare-knuckle brawl with people who are looking for a fight, spoiling for it. And we'll have the media there in great numbers and on their side looking for any reason whatsoever. To point See, this is why we have this dangerous white supremacist extremism going on in America and we've got to clamp down, we've got to make sure that these people are stopped, take away their guns and whatever. I mean, there's plenty of friction to go around. And and, you're, and because of Coeur proximity to Spokane, Washington, as well as to other uh, major cities in the Northwest, I mean, it's not that far from Portland. It's not that far from Seattle. I think you're going to see the uh, neo-Marxist ranks very well represented. And I don't care how well-intentioned. The Christian warriors are going to be who are there to, you know, represent, you know, for for truth and and goodness. This is a puddle of gasoline just waiting for a spark. And I'm just asking you, please consider that there may be smarter ways, better ways to fight that battle than to go provide more friction where there's already a ton of it. I know that's going to. Well, gee, Brian, that's not very militant of you. I'm just trying to use some common sense here. First of all, I believe that, uh, you know, for instance, looking back at January 6th, it's very, very clear. The majority of the people who were in Washington, D.C. and protesting what appeared to be wholesale fraud and manipulation of the election. They, um, you know, they were lumped in with the the operatives, whoever they were, whether they were federal agents or You know, just just some particularly well-trained white right-wing, you know, group. But there was a very tiny minority of people that actually broke into the Capitol, that actually instigated violence, that actually, you know, crossed the line into illegal activity. Can you imagine that such a thing could happen again, especially in a climate where right now the political left is pushing very, very hard for gun control? I guess maybe it's just a matter of time before, you know, these two opposing sides show up and somebody decides, hey, it's, it's time to get stupid and, you know, to, to show everybody that to our side is better and it's going to turn into some kind of armed conflict. And when it does, I think it has potential to, to take on much, much deeper uh, importance, not just wherever it's happening, but perhaps, you know, across the country. You know, I hope I'm wrong. I really do. I hope that, that, you know, it just goes off swimmingly and the people who are there to celebrate have their celebration and whatnot. You know, I don't agree with the idea of, oh, let's get the kids and expose them to, you know, as much deviancy as possible. I also happen to know a lot of uh, people who are gay and uh, that's that's not the central focus of their lives. That's not they I mean, how would you feel? If somebody suggested, you know, anytime your sexuality is mentioned, we need to pop corks and everybody needs to celebrate and, and start apologizing. I don't know about you, but that would make me a little uncomfortable. Because there's a lot more to me than simply, well, are you heterosexual? Are you confident heterosexual? So if people want to celebrate, look, whatever they want to do peacefully, that's their business. I'm getting a sense that this is this is becoming less of a uh, an option for people who are like, nah, that's not for me. <laughs> I think we're we're rapidly approaching the point where, hey, this is going to be mandatory. And in fact, I think we've sailed past that point where you will bend the knee, you will observe this celebration with us, and now it's being focused on, and your children are going to come along for the ride. And like a lot of parents, that you start looking at targeting my kids and wanting to corrupt my kids or corrupt their thinking. Oh yeah. I'm going to draw a very hard line there. But I'm not sure that open confrontation in the park, you know, proud boy style, is the way to do it. I think it plays into the hands of the instigators who really want something to kick off so that uh, violence can be initiated. And I, I worry that it will snowball and will be used as the justification for a much broader crackdown on liberty everywhere you know, out of necessity. It's a state of emergency, and that's why we have to do this. So use your noggin. If you're going to go, go represent. But I'm still very much of the opinion that if, if you're serious about making a difference, if you are serious about influencing the world for the better, you start with yourself. You offer society that one improved unit, and I happen to subscribe to the idea that that one improved unit probably is best based on the idea of live not by the lie. So refuse to participate. Refuse to bend the knee. That doesn't mean you have to go out and, you know, shout slogans and march and and make other people feel bad about whatever it is they think. Believe it or not, your actions speak very loudly when you simply are a calm, well-adjusted, productive person who blesses the lives of the people around them. Now, that's going to sound way too pacifist for some people. There's a time where it would have sounded too pacifist for me. But one of the benefits of just a little bit of life experience is that I've seen it work. I've seen people's lives change for the better. And I really do believe that uh, you and me, focusing on, on getting ourselves in order, getting our own hearts rectified, Has greater impact than going out there and you know waving signs, waving banners, shouting down people, or heaven forbid, fist fighting them in the streets, you know, to show how right our side is. So, food for thought. You don't have to accept this. I understand completely if you know this is this a bunch of crap and I'm not going to listen. Okay, that's fine. (laughs) But as long as the weirdness is getting dialed up, it's something that I suspect many of us are going to have to to confront at some level. And to be a truly good person, an undeniably good person, has far more impact than I think we give it credit for, you know, in our day-to-day lives. By the way, it takes courage to do that. In fact, honestly, it takes more courage to be a good person and to live as a good person because you will be misunderstood. You will be misrepresented. You will be targeted and shouted down. But if you're at peace with your conscience, why would any of the
0: rest of that matter? Do you understand what I'm saying? This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show.
1: I want to give a shout-out here to Dixie Chiropractic. You can go to their website at dixiechiro.com. Com. This is the offices of Dr. Ward Wagner. A couple quick specials I want to make you aware of, too. If you or someone you know is dealing with bulging, herniated discs, first of all, my condolences. That is that's miserable. But look at this. Here's a $99 intro special, which is two treatments plus massage. You can contact DixieChiro.com for more information. If you have problems with neuropathy, check out the $99 Calmare treatment plus massage. Again, DixieChiro.com. That's the website you want to go to. There's even a link in my show notes. Well, the idea that we're living in a time of near universal weirdness, I think is pretty self-evident. I don't know very many people who would say, no, 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 this is all good. <laughs> it's, this, is, this is the best the world has ever been. We're definitely going through a cycle of, whoa, <laughs> I did not expect to see this. Jacob Hornberger offers a very comprehensive diagnosis about what plagues us, but more importantly, he talks about what it takes to repair a weird society. He says, by now, even the most diehard welfare warfare statist has to acknowledge that we are living in a weird, dysfunctional, drug-addled, poverty-producing and violence-prone society. What better proof of the failure of the welfare warfare state way of life than that? he says, look around. $30 trillion in federal debt and climbing, prices of gasoline, food, and other things soaring, increasing the economic misery of those at the bottom of the economic ladder. Federal spending is out of control. The Federal Reserve, scared to death of causing the stock market to crash, scratches its collective noodle on what to do about the debasement of the currency that it's wrought decade after decade. America's warfare state killing machine continues apace, this time using its Cold War dinosaur NATO to bring about the Russia-Ukraine war, which has brought massive death and destruction to both Ukrainians and Russians. The massive loss of life among Russian troops is celebrated by statists as another glorious achievement with the aim of degrading Russia. Meanwhile, every statist ignores the obvious point that if it had been the Pentagon rather than Russia that invaded Ukraine, statists would be tripping all over themselves, praising the troops and thanking them for their service, as they did in the deadly, destructive, long-term invasions and occupations of Iraq and Afghanistan. And what about the much vaunted War on Poverty That socialist program obviously went nowhere. In fact, the welfare state has done more to ensure the continuation and worsening of poverty, especially with its out-of-control federal spending, its massive confiscatory taxation, and its plunder through inflationary debasement of the currency. And let's not forget the hopeless dependency on socialism that the welfare state has produced in the American people, particularly with the two crown jewels of the welfare state, Social Security and Medicare. Every statist lives in abject fear that without these two socialist narcotics, there would be people dying in the streets. Jacob Hornberger says, and clearly, the decades-long program called the Drug War has not caused Americans to give up their mind-altering substances. In fact, the drug consumption problem is obviously still so large that the drug war has to remain in existence no matter how much violence and failure it has produced. And then there's the severe pathological dependency on the national security state. In other words, the Pentagon, the CIA, and the NSA. Every statist is convinced that this massive totalitarian government structure, which reigns supreme in the federal government, is keeping him safe from the terrorists, the Muslims, the illegal immigrants, the Reds, Russia, China, North Korea, Vietnam, Cuba, Venezuela, Iran, and don't forget those scary drug dealers, too. Meanwhile, statists continue to celebrate and glorify their beloved socialist immigration control system, which continues to bring death and suffering to people who want nothing more than to simply improve their lives through labor. Somehow, statists think they'll feel better about themselves if they're able to continue inflicting misery on other people. He says in celebrating their all-powerful welfare warfare state, statists are unable to see that what their system has produced is a nation of weak, dependent, and scared child adults. Consider also the regular spate of massive violence all across America in the form of mass killings. It's not exactly the sign of a healthy society, but the statists say, well, it's all because there are too many guns. Really, says Jacob Hornberger. Correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, there are lots of guns in Switzerland. I don't see a lot of mass killings over there. Statists just can't bring themselves to see that the violence in America is just another sign of what statists have done to our country with their massive dysfunctional welfare warfare state. Way of life. Now he says perhaps the most amusing part of all this is how statists have convinced themselves of how free they are. They all go around singing, Thank God I'm American, I'm an American because at least I know I'm free. And what's pathetic is that they really do believe it, notwithstanding the state sponsored assassinations, torture, indefinite detention, and secret international prison camps that their beloved warfare state have brought into existence. Statists embody perfectly the words of Johann Goethe. None are more hopelessly enslaved than those who falsely believe they are free. He says, meanwhile, statists are convinced that they're going to be able to fix their monstrous little system through reform. But it ain't going to happen. Their welfare state way of life is inherently defective, and so is their warfare state way of life. Inherently defective means that it is incapable of being fixed. Things are only going to get worse. Okay, he's laid out the problem pretty clearly, wouldn't you say? So what about the solution? All right, Jacob Hornberger says, but at least there is a solution to all this weirdness, violence, poverty, death, and suffering. That solution is libertarianism, the most glorious political and economic philosophy ever conceived. Now that necessarily means a dismantling, not a reform of the welfare, warfare, state, way of life that statists have foisted upon our nation. It means the restoration of America's founding systems of a free market economy, private charity, non-interventionism, and a limited government republic. Statists should do everyone a favor and step out of the way. Jacob Hornberger says, let us libertarians restore a healthy, prosperous, kind, charitable, peaceful, and harmonious society to our land. Now, I get it. I know that uh, there are those who will say, well, you know, you libertarians, you know, because we get hung up on labels, right? Libertarians are all about throwing Frisbees and smoking pot, right? But what he outlines here in the idea of a free market economy, private charity, non-intervention, and strictly limited government, in other words, limited to protecting your God-given rights and everybody else's God-given rights, it all rests upon consent. And that's what I would like to, to, that's the seed I'd like to plant in your mind and perhaps in your heart. Does the system really represent you? Does it really give you the option of, of consenting or not? Or does it threaten to punish you? I mean, how many times are we told, well, you know, paying taxes is voluntary. Yeah, sure it is until the government sets its eyes on you and says, hey, uh, we believe you owe these taxes. And by the way, you have to prove the negative. Prove to us that you don't owe them. And we're going to freeze all your assets and we're going to haul you to jail and we're going to put you in prison. We're going to do it as publicly as possible to make sure that everybody sees the example that's being made of you. Yeah, but other than that, it's totally voluntary. I mean, you know, if you want to do it, great. If you don't, don't. (laughs) So I guess uh, what I'm suggesting here is one of the first and best fixes that you and I can can engage in to, to help set things right is to figure out the areas in which uh, you can and choose to give consent to those in power. Now, I understand you're not going to perfectly escape those, uh, those power seekers and those opportunists. You're just not. But there are a lot of places in your life where you can stop going to them with your hat in your hand and begging permission, please, please, may I, may I? Find those areas, live your life without permission, live your life peacefully. I guess that should go without saying. But where, where you need to, you can withdraw your consent. Frankly, I think the greatest thing that could happen to us is enough people realizing that they could withdraw their consent and leave politicians standing there making their stump speeches and sputtering, realizing nobody's listening to me. Even their enforcers at that point are going to find too big of a task at hand to to force everybody to listen, force everybody to pay attention, force them to believe. I think we overlook the power of the word
0: no. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show.
1: Want to give a shout-out here to Sewing and Quilting Center. You can go to their website. There's a link in my show notes, sewingandquiltingcenter.com. You can visit their physical store, 779 South Bluff Street in St. George, Utah. If there's something sewing-related, quilting-related, or embroidery-related, you know, that the whole genre is covered, and they have it all. They also service sewing machines. Whether you bought your machine from them or not, they can service it. They've got qualified technicians. They can train you to use your machine. I think that's one of the greatest selling points ever. I want to buy this sewing machine, but I don't know how to use it. Okay, well, then they'll teach you the free classes to, to show you how to use it. You can't lose in that scenario. Sewingandquiltingcenter.com. Tell them thanks for sponsoring this program. Well, you know, the president talks about uh, assault weapons. I'm putting that in air quotes as if it's a moral issue. Got a great article here from James Bovard explaining how any assault weapons ban is just the first step on the road to greater tyranny. He says President Joe Biden is seeking to revive his presidency by demolishing the Second Amendment. In a televised address last Thursday, Biden called for a ban on assault weapons, which he portrayed as the epitome of evil. Vice President Kamala Harris caterwauled that assault weapons are a weapon of war with no place in civil society. Now, assault weapons are a flag of convenience for the Democrats' circus shell game with Americans' constitutional rights. Bovard says Biden talks as if assault weapons are solely a moral issue, but once that premise is accepted... Then he can move to ban vast numbers of firearms widely owned by Americans. In an August 2019 interview, CNN host Anderson Cooper asked Biden about gun owners who fear that a Biden administration means they're going to come for my guns. Biden replied, bingo, you're right. If you have an assault weapon. In his Thursday speech, Biden declared that he respected the concerns of lawful gun owners. But after Biden changes the law, millions of those same individuals could be federal felons who Biden feels entitled to disarm. Bovard says we're supposed to blindly trust the White House that an assault weapon is whatever they say it is this week. Vice President Kamala Harris declared last week, you know what an assault weapon is. It was designed for a specific person to kill a lot of human beings quickly. But millions of Americans use the gun for hunting, target shooting and other endeavors. The federal ban on machine guns first enacted in 1934 rests on a clear definition, a firearm that fires multiple rounds with each trigger pull. But assault weapon refers to semi-automatic, in other words, one shot per trigger pull, firearms with attributes that frighten pundits and politicians. The original 1994 assault weapons ban prohibited rifles with grenade launchers, even though such grenade launchers had never been used in a violent crime in the United States. It was picture book prohibition decimating the second amendment on aesthetic grounds and because assault weapon in quotation marks is a political hobgoblin rather than a specific type of firearm legal definitions are often arbitrary and confusing which can have fatal consequences Montgomery County Maryland police killed 21-year-old Duncan Lemp in a no-knock pre-dawn raid on March 20 or March 12 2020 After they saw an Instagram photo, he posted of himself with a rifle, which they presumed was an illegal Israeli assault weapon forbidden by Maryland law. Police also targeted Lemp, an outspoken gun rights advocate, for a shoot-first, knock-and-announce later raid because he'd made anti-police comments to an informant. Nine months after Lemp was shot to death in his bedroom, after police had smashed in the bedroom window, The county attorney issued a report which laconically mentioned it should be noted that upon further review and investigation into the IWI Tavor X-95 rifle, it was determined that it was not an assault rifle. It appears that Lemp's rifle was a legal copycat made to look exactly like the illegal version of the IWI Tavor X-95. Very minute changes such as the overall length of a weapon can mean the difference between an illegal assault rifle and a legal one. But the non-banned weapon was close enough for government work to exonerate police for killing Lemp in his bedroom. The county government treated its fatal mistake like a paperwork error. Very minute changes is the key to the assault weapons charade, says Jim Bovard. Politicians and bureaucrats can make minute changes to official regulations to covertly turn millions of American gun owners into felons overnight. The Trump administration did that with bump stocks and the Biden administration is hustling to do that with pistol braces. Biden recently condemned nine millimeter ammo and gun magazines, which hold more than 10 bullets, which includes most of the pistols sold in the U.S. in the last decade. And while Biden's whipping up public rage on AR-15 type rifles, there's no fundamental difference between AR-15s and other rifles with a detachable magazine. Bovard says the federal assault weapon ban expired after 10 years. When Senator Dianne Feinstein pushed for the ban to be reinstated, she estimated that the previously banned weapons were used in 50 killings nationwide per year, fewer than the number of people strangled to death each year. A 2004 report financed by the National Institute of Justice found that the ban had little or no impact on violent crime. A 2013 National Institute of Justice report concluded since assault weapons are not a major contributor to U.S. gun homicide and the existing stock of guns is large, an assault weapon ban is unlikely to have an impact on gun violence. All types of rifles account for less than 6% of homicides. Now, as a Washington Post editorial admitted after the initial assault weapons ban was enacted, assault weapons play only play a part in only a small percentage of crime. The provision is mainly symbolic its virtue will be, if it turns out to be, as hoped, a stepping stone to broader gun control. Bingo. If Biden's assault weapons ban is placed on the books, demagogic politicians and their media allies will demand that the list of, of banned weapons be expanded after each high-profile high profile shooting. Jim Bovard says, regardless of how brazenly the police failed to respond to active shooters, such as the Uvalde school shooting the only solution will be to seize more guns from peaceful citizens. Representative Thomas Massey sagely observed, Democrats say they don't want to ban all guns, but they do want to take some guns from all people and all guns from some people. Good luck not being on either of their two lists. He says the AR-15 is merely the opening political bid for a disarmament game propelled by a media chorus always demanding more, more, more. Biden's perennial contempt for the Second Amendment proves he cannot be trusted with a vaporous prohibition that can be expanded at his pleasure. Gun owners would be criminally naive to expect Washington politicians to respect their rights better in the future than they did in the past. Okay, I've got a link to this in the show notes. I would encourage you, uh, not just this article, but read what Jim Bovard writes about. This guy has been inside Washington for many, many years, but his insights and his commitment to truth-telling is really top-notch. I don't think he should be feeling panicky when when you hear talk of, well, you know, they're looking to to, to have, you know, more gun control instituted. I mean, the, the Supreme Court is supposed, is supposed to be releasing a, a pretty important uh, gun control ruling. Today, and it's expected that it's going to actually be a favorable ruling in favor of the Second Amendment. But I'm going to suggest something that may sound just a little bit radical. Please bear with me. Your right to keep and bear arms, and I mean all arms that you're capable of bearing, is not dependent upon the words on a piece of paper. Be it the Constitution, be it uh, some piece of legislation. Your rights do not depend upon those things. They pre-exist government. They pre-exist politicians. They pre-exist policy and even the Constitution. And it's, it's sad to me that, that this even needs to be clarified, but this is how far we've strayed from our, our foundations and, and from the principles and practices of liberty. The Second Amendment does not give you any right whatsoever. The Constitution itself, of which the Second Amendment is a part, calls the government into existence, describes its form, its function, and the upper limits of its power. And the Second Amendment puts an especially fine point on prohibiting the infringement of your God-given right to keep and bear arms. Ooh, that's an interesting spin. Well, I thought we had to wait for some judge to tell us what it all means. So in a nutshell, what I'm saying is, politicians can talk all they want. They can pass whatever they want. But if enough people simply make up their minds that, you know what, I know what my rights are, I'm willing to claim them, I am willing to use them, and if necessary, if you push me into a corner, I will defend them. You're not the criminal. The person who is initiating aggressive force against you is the criminal, and anyone they send to enforce that uh, that uh, initiation of force, or so to to bring lethal aggression to your doorstep, is a criminal. I know it's it's a radical thought, and yet had the uh, had the forefathers, you know, the the colonists of 1775, not understood this very important distinction. Well, I guess they would have just allowed the uh, Redcoats to come and take their arms, take their ammunition, and shut up and been good little boys and girls and done what they were told. I'm grateful that they didn't.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And just like that, we are back.
1: All right, I got some good news and I've got some bad news. The good news is we're all about to lose a little bit of uh, weight, right? We're all going to take off some extra pounds in the near future. (laughs) Uh, The bad news is it's uh, likely because we're on the verge of a food crisis. Now, I've talked about this for some time I'm I'm going to continue to sound the warning. I know that that most people are at least somewhat aware of it, but I think in the back of our minds, maybe it's just that uh, normalcy bias that makes us want to believe, you know, but I can still go to Costco, and they still have lots of cool things. I can still outspend myself by going there, and I'm grateful for that as well. But I think we're taking for granted how much abundance is around us right now and how fragile that abundance really is. As I was putting $5 a gallon gas into my tank this morning, I was like, you know, there's, there's a psychological threshold. <laughs> that Once it gets over five gallons, I saw the signs as I was driving down the road yesterday and was like, ah, oh, dang. <sighs> you know, $4.95, 0.9 cents per gallon. You know, that, that's tough, but at least it's not $5. But when it crosses that $5 threshold, and it was like five oh four, I think, this morning. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's a kick in the gut to, <laughs> to see that and realize, man, the cost of a diesel. Diesel's over six bucks a gallon in so many places. I only mention this not to scare you, not to make you feel bad. In fact, if you drive a diesel, you know this better than anybody. But everything that arrives on store shelves gets there, usually on a truck, powered by diesel. So. want to share a couple of thoughts with you from Douglas Andrews. This is from the Patriot Post. Are we on the verge of a food crisis? Inflation, soaring fuel prices, shrinking food supplies and other events and circumstances are threatening what we most take for granted. He says, need to lose a few pounds? Lucky you. A food shortage may be coming and a New York Times op-ed is actually celebrating it. Inflation has the potential to drive welcome change for the planet if Americans think differently about the way they eat, writes Annalise Griffin. Climate change has motivated some to eat less resource-intensive meat and more vegetables, grains and legumes. But this movement has not reached the scale necessary to bring needed change yet. Douglas Andrews says, relax. Not even Griffin, in her eco-theological exuberance, is talking about eating out of garbage trucks or stoning cows to death in their fields like they did in socialist Venezuela. At least, not yet. But another op-ed has also gotten our attention. South Dakota Governor Kristi Noam says, From my family's farm to the state committee for the USDA Farm Service Agency to the, U- to the House Agriculture Committee. She says, I have worked in agriculture in some capacity since I could walk. Now I serve along a third-generation cattle rancher, Lieutenant Governor Larry Roden. We are the only farmer-rancher pair to lead a state's executive branch, and we are both deeply concerned. America's food supply system is at risk. Governor Noam notes that when an entity controls your food supply, it controls you. She writes, for years now, foreign countries have been investing in our food supply chain, buying up the chemical and fertilizer companies that make American agriculture possible. Purchasing processing facilities, they have introduced vulnerability into the food supply chains Americans rely on to eat. Today, China's buying up millions of acres of land across the United States, following the same blueprint they've used in other countries for years. We know all about Communist China's military ambitions, which involve creating islands where none existed so as to turn them into naval ports and airstrips and military bases, thereby strengthening its sphere of influence. We also know about China's manufacturing juggernaut and its rapaciousness when it comes to natural resources and minerals. So why on earth are we allowing the Chai Koms to buy millions of acres of our land? Is it possible that they can't feed their own people from Chinese soil? Or might they be laying claim to American lands because they intend one day to exert their influence over us? As Governor Noam writes, we have not yet realized our strategic vulnerability when it comes to our nation's food supply. And it's not just China. Consider the American beef industry. What could be more American than beef, right? Wrong. Noam notes that four mega packers now control 85% of the industry. And two of those conglomerates are located in Brazil. One of those companies, JBS Foods, was hacked last May, causing 20% of our nation's beef supply to go offline overnight. Again, why are we allowing ourselves to become so vulnerable? Then there are the numerous and odd disruptive events that we noted a few weeks ago. A number of factories, logistical centers, and food processing plants have caught fire or exploded, including two that had planes crash on them, writes Jeff Reynolds, who then goes on to chronicle an unnerving number of these events. Now, Governor Noam has also noticed these events, but she writes, Mainstream media outlets are busy attempting to lampoon anyone who expresses even the remotest concern about incidents at food processing facilities today. The repeated refrain is, there's no evidence of any wrongdoing, so drop it. But the absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. Douglas Andrews says, if you think we're scaremongering, ask yourself. Did you ever imagine that baby formula would one day become a scarce commodity in these United States? Now, Congress has since taken notice, but how did it ever get to the point here in the land of plenty, especially with such an elemental and essential food item? Writing back in March against the backdrop of Russia's war with Ukraine, columnist Glenn Harlan Reynolds noted the effects it was already having on wheat, of which Ukraine is a major supplier, and fertilizer, of which Russia is the world's leading supplier. Nor should we be comforted that China is the world's second leading supplier of fertilizer, not that unfertilized farmland is, nor that uh, unfertilized farmland is 40% less productive than fertilized land. Reynolds wrote, with the triple-barreled threat of inflation, soaring fuel prices, and shrunken food supplies, the world faces something like the same fate. And once again, those responsible are unlikely to pay the price. But maybe some will. After all, food shortages led to the Arab Spring riots and the overturning of governments. What to make of this slow-moving disaster in the making? Well, time will tell. And while we can't blame Joe Biden for the entirety of the triple-barreled threat that Reynolds cites, we can certainly remind ourselves that elections have consequences. I mean, I hope that that at least stirs some kind of awareness and with it, you know, a desire to do what you can within your means to improve your situation. You could uh, click on the uh, lifesavingfood.com link in my show notes, which you'll find at the com. That's a sponsor that provides some great food storage. Right now, there are still plentiful supplies, but there's going to come a tipping point in which people are going to realize, ooh, food is getting harder to come by. And when that panic sets in, you're going to have that same uneasy feeling that you had about mid-March of 2020 as the toilet paper, you know, was stripped off the shelves and people fist fought in the aisles over gallons of milk and so forth. Don't be too late to take some simple necessary steps to protect yourself and the people you love. You should be doing it anyway, right? This is just, that's part of provident living. That's part of, you know, providing more of your own food, growing a garden, having small livestock, you know, working with the farmer's markets in your community. All right, I'm going to leave that aside for a moment. One thought I wanted to share with you, too. you want to know what moral courage looks like in our day? I think it looks a lot like the baseball players that were attacked for not wearing their Pride Night special uniforms. Eric Utter, writing for AmericanThinker.com, says, Does pride go with before a fall? Well, we're going to see in time, I suppose. But one thing is certain, pride go with before a ball, a baseball, that is, courtesy of the Tampa Bay Rays, among other teams. The franchise recently decided to engage in a little shameless virtue signaling by literally wearing their support for LGBTQA++ blah, blah, blah community on their sleeves. The players' jersey sleeves, to be precise. Following the lead of the San Francisco Giants, the team added rainbow-colored logos to their Pride Night uniforms, according to the Tampa Bay Times. And, of course, during the Pride Night game, Saturday night, the Rays included members of the LGBT community in pregame events. They gave many pride flags to attendees. They made a $20,000 donation to Metro Inclusive Health, which provides diverse health and wellness services to the community. But not every Rays player was eager to be used in this manner. The Times reported that at least five members of the squad removed the Rainbow, Rainbow Burst logos from their jersey-sleeved sleeves, rather, and donned the team's standard cap instead of the pride cap sporting a rainbow colored TB on the front. Now, these players were blasted as, well, how, you know, how terrible of them to do this? How would they do this? And where does it say in the Bible, thou shalt not wear a rainbow on thou's clothing? But this was a matter of personal conscience for these five players. It takes courage to stand up when you know that people are going to take a swing. Even if you're just peacefully saying, I'm not going to participate in this, they will take a swing at you. My friend Eric Muzos could tell you all about this. The price of having a conscience is you are sometimes going to be scorned and punished and have public relations problems with the larger society. But the benefit of having your conscience and being responsive to your conscience is that you will be at peace with your conscience, and that is worth a lot more than society's approval.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. A trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny, And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there
1: and welcome to the show. My goal behind this microphone every day is not to tell you what to think, but to share with you content that will provoke clear and independent thinking. In other words, you don't have to agree. Sometimes it's best if you don't. But I want people to take a more serious look at the content that they consume and decide for themselves what is true, what is not, rather than waiting for me or anybody else to fact check it and spoon feed you, okay, now here's what you should think about this. For crying out loud, we're all adults. Besides, it feels good to revel in wrong think. It feels good to push back against the narrative. Sometimes it's absolutely a necessity. I want to give a quick shout-out to one of my sponsors, that being HSLAmmo.com. Ammunition is how one converts money into skill, particularly skill at arms. And for my listeners in southern Utah, you are very fortunate to have a wonderful company that provides high-quality, new and remanufactured ammunition, At reasonable prices, that's hslammo.com. Click on the link in my show notes and avail yourself of their services as you need them. You know, there's a lot we take for granted. And I think uh, nowhere is that more true than when it comes to the food that we eat. Got a great article here from from Deb Kazmeric. Down on the farm with inflation. I thought this might uh, spark some interest in, in some of my listeners. Pretend farmers, she says. That's what we're called by our neighbors who farm for a living. Having retired to a 10-acre chunk of southern Minnesota farmland, she says, my husband and I don't depend on our miniature-scale operation to support us. Instead, our efforts are aimed at keeping family and friends in eggs and lamb chops, chops. rather And this week, she says, we raised prices on both. Our decision to charge more for what we produce won't further royal the stock market or accelerate the decimation of your 401k, nor are we likely to come to mind when you hear media ads from local nonprofits blaming inflation on corporate price gouging. Still, unwillingly, we become part of the inflation problem that is eviscerating Americans' buying power, imperiling our economic security. Now, she says, My husband and I tried every cost saving strategy we could think of to avoid raising prices. We held the line until our flocks could be returned to pasture, dining on grass and insects instead of costly oats, corn, and alfalfa. But price increases for feed, fuel, fertilizers, all up between 85 and 400% in the last few years, at least according to her real farmer neighbor, eclipsed those savings. So she says, We dispatched less productive hens to the freezer, a tactic with the unfortunate side effect of diminishing the supply of eggs and exerting further upward price pressure. Now, Deb Kaczmarek says... Our retirement farming gig allows us the luxury of choosing whether to absorb or pass along these jaw-dropping price increases or throw in the towel. Business owners with a payroll to make, truckers with diesel tanks to fill, families with many mouths to feed, real farmers with crops to plant and till and harvest and take to market. Well, they must feel desperate in the face of crushing across-the-board inflation. To the extent that any of these folks can raise prices for their goods and services, their increases only add fuel to the inflation conflagration. And that's only part of the economic chaos we're enduring. She says perhaps even more crippling than exploding prices are imploding supplies. Supply chain disruptions is a phrase most Americans never heard until governments cobbled together their shutdown response to COVID. Supply chains, she says like her mother's good lamp, are evidently more easily broken than repaired, for shortages continue, from automobiles to pharmaceuticals to computer chips to baby formula. And Deb Kaczmarek asks, how did we get to this point? Life-threatening shortages, record-setting inflation, and the specters of stagflation and recession? Well, Supreme Court Justice-to-be Ketanji Brown-Jackson is no biologist, and she says, well, I'm no economist. But my college work-study stint as secretary to the economics faculty taught me this much. Inflation occurs when too many dollars chase too few goods. Trillions in government deficit spending during a period of government-restricted production and distribution of goods? Inflation guaranteed. Stating the obvious gets us nowhere, of course. She says, for now we're stuck in the world that we've allowed politicians to create for us. But the future can be better, and Leonard Reed's storied 1958 essay, I, Pencil, may show us a way forward. Reed's essay in a handful of pages dedicated to the unfathomably complicated life story of a number two pencil drives home the folly of politicians who choke off domestic oil production in pursuit of a green agenda without recognizing the near cataclysmic impacts of their policies. And of bureaucrats who shutter small businesses or baby formula factories in the name of public health without understanding the avalanche of nasty consequences that will follow. Brushing up on eye pencil will make one other important thing clear that is, America's voters come in for our share of the blame, too. Failing to appreciate the complexity of our extraordinary economic system will make us gullible, eager to fall for the quick fixes offered by ambitious politicians, and in denial about the pain that accompanies their nostrums. That's a really great essay. And I I think everybody's going to appreciate what she's talking about here. At some point, we're going to suddenly realize, wow, you know, that food distribution chain and and how food got from the farm to our fork, that's really, really remarkable. But I, I fear that it's going to happen only when people realize, hey, that system is no longer working or has broken down completely i mean what's the saying you don't really appreciate what you had until it's gone well it's not gone but it's definitely in a state of deep decline and and that is a real concern now i don't share this with you because you need one more thing to be concerned and fearful about cast out the fear okay don't give it a place in your mind at the same time Recognize that this is a challenge, it's a growing challenge, and it's likely to become a much bigger challenge than it is right now. And that's not, you know, an excuse to curl up in a ball and start sucking your thumb and just, well, I guess I better give up, or I guess I'll just die. We have options but in order to exercise those options we've got to be willing to first examine them we've got to be willing to weigh out what would work best in my situation you know people living in an apartment aren't really going to have quite the option of grow your own food and have a milk cow or whatever that's just not going to work for them but you know what might voluntary cooperation with other people in your community who have those resources and again i'm going to mention i'm going to mention these uh, farmers markets community supported agriculture CSAs are another thing that I think is is terribly overlooked. Some people have caught on. But if you haven't looked into community-supported agriculture, this might be a really good time to do it. And I mean, you kind of get the thrill. If you're like me and, you know, part of your thrill is, hey, I like to live my life without official permission. Well, maybe somebody can line you up with some, you know, good unpasteurized whole milk. Oh, I know. Well, Brian, people will die if they do that. Yes, just as we all died before, you know, pasteurization became the norm. But I'm just saying, if that's something that you're looking for, there are people out there who can supply it. Building those relationships, building your own skills so that you can participate in a barter economy I'm just throwing a couple of different ideas out there, things that could be worthwhile and could open up avenues should the official system, you know, the one that respectable people all use, not function as we've uh, been accustomed to it functioning. If you're worried that, well, this is going to take me outside the mainstream or, you know, people might look at me funny because I'm hanging out with, you know, you freedom types. Ask yourself, where does your personal responsibility begin and end? Is someone else responsible for putting food on your table? And by what right do you lay claim to, well, that farmer has to grow something and has to bring it to me and, you know, why stop there? Let's make the farmer cook it up for you and do the dishes afterwards. All right, you get the point. We all bear personal responsibility for taking care of ourselves, for taking care of our loved ones. That can start in big ways or it most often starts in smaller ways. Anything you can do to better prepare yourself to be more self-sufficient. Maybe it's collecting rainwater. By the way, I know that's why you can't do that without permission from the state. Would you Would you make that your biggest consideration if your family was perishing for thirst and you had the ability to collect rainwater coming off your roof and and to, you know, purify it or to otherwise uh, make it safe to drink? Would you wait until the state told you that was okay? I know what my answer would be, but I'll let you suss out what your answer would be. All right, we'll take a quick break. Hey, if you'd like to subscribe to my show notes, go to my website, thebrianheidshow.com. Hit the subscribe button at the bottom of the show notes. Send me your email. I'll send you those show notes
0: each day that I do the program. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Once again, thanks for joining us
1: today. I'm happy to find you in the company of your fellow wrong thinkers. Also want to thank the Heather Turner team from Patriot Home Mortgage for being one of my sponsors. Heather has done a lot to keep me on the air, and she has also done a lot to help anybody who is looking for a mortgage. And her team at Patriot Home Mortgage has the stability, they have the clout, they have the decades of experience to get you the loan you need without delay. So if you want to count on her experience and her insight to get the job done for you, here's how you can reach her. You can call 435-703-4522. You can click on the link that I provide in my show notes. It'll take you right to her email. Or if you're in St. George, Utah, go to 619 South Bluff Street. That's where you'll find her offices. Heather's NMLS ID is 715386. Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. So when you think about it, there are a number of once-in-a-lifetime events in each one of our lives. I saw a very interesting essay from Jeff Minnick from Intellectual Takeout the other day, and he talked about a particular once-in-a-lifetime event that just really rang the right bells in my heart, and that is giving our children a childhood. Jeff Minnick says, I was on my way home the other day when I saw a fire truck at the local rec park. As I passed, I saw a female firefighter holding a hose and spraying water over a mob of squealing, laughing little kids. I swung into the parking lot, pulled up near the rig, and watched. And he says, and there I saw pure, unadulterated joy. There were 60 or more kids in bathing suits on the grass beside the lot. He says, I rolled down my window and just listened for a minute or two to those peals of laughter and shrieks and watched as soaking wet kids dashed in and out of the plumes of water. Getting out of the car... He says, I walked over to a woman who seemed in charge and who identified herself as one of the kindergarten teachers at the nearby elementary school. This was one of the last events of the school year, she explained, and after all the excitement, the boys and girls would be joining a group of parents under a nearby shelter for lunch. Now, Jeff Minnick says, I observed this wonderful aquatic chaos for a few more minutes, laughing like a fool with delight. And though I wanted to stay longer, I soon drove away as we live in an age where an old guy watching school children raises suspicions. But he says, the joy that I collected from that spectacle rode home with me and stayed in my heart through the afternoon and into the evening. Every once in a while, he says, I chuckled just thinking about those kindergartners. The immense pleasure of those few minutes gave rise to thoughts about children and the burdens today, today's culture is placing on them. That crew in the park was having a blast running and jumping, just little kids being kids. But he said some adults seemed determined to snatch away that sense of wonder and joy, replacing it with fear and confusion. And I love the examples he gives. Do six-year-olds, for example, really need to know about doomsday climate change? An as-yet-unproven theory? Do eight-year-olds benefit by being taught they'll be judged for the rest of their lives by the color of their skin? No one in that crowd being sprayed by the hose seemed to pay any attention to the pigmentation of their classmates. And he asks, What sort of people favor introducing elementary school kids to sex education and gender identity, and why? Little kids are already afraid of hobgoblins and monsters under the bed. Do adults really wish to add to those terrors and kill off the innocence of childhood? Lisa's fortunately, the answer to that question is no. Plenty of families that he knows make every effort to give their sons and daughters a childhood free of the daily traumas inflicted on the rest of us by our culture. They monitor the books of their children and read and the books their children read, rather, and the movies that they watch. They strictly supervise and limit their time on computers and phones. They read them poetry and fairy tales and tell them bedtime stories. They watch what they say when discussing culture and politics in front of their kids. They work to install virtues in their offspring, while keeping them as free as possible from the vices of adulthood until they've reached the age of reason. Now, of course, these moms and dads have their work cut out for them. Sex, cynicism, sarcasm, and obscenity are mainstays in our entertainment industry. And Jeff Minnick says parents must keep constant watch over outside influences on their children, friends, the classroom, our public libraries, summer camps and sports teams, and more. Even other parents deserve scrutiny. In her article on groomers and gay pride parades, for example, Paula Bolliard points out that some people are fine with their children attending these events and finding amusements in such sites as beanie babies with giant penises on them. As children mature, the moms and dads who safeguarded their children's innocence will teach them about love and sexuality. They will help their young people understand that the world can be tough, that plans fall apart, and that good does not always triumph over evil. Meanwhile, these parents know in their hearts of hearts that childhood is the time when the imagination sprouts wings and flies. It's the time when the world can and should seem magical and sweet, loving and just. It's the time when children recognize mommy and daddy as defenders of the realm who are there to protect, defend, and care for them, to kiss a scraped knee or chase away bad dreams in the middle of the night. His point is that children get only one childhood. Let's make sure that we give it to them. I don't know why this one hit me, but uh, as I read that, I thought, yeah. I, I've i watched my kids. I've got six kids, and I've watched each of them grow up. My youngest is just about to turn 14. And there there's always been a certain sense of mourning that I have felt as I've watched their innocence get beaten down by the world. And look, it's inevitable. All of us are going to be facing the world as it is at some point. You can't keep them sheltered indefinitely. But in reading Jeff Minnick's article, it, just, it caused me to reflect on just how much I absolutely cherished that time when my kids weren't burdened with these unnecessary things. When they could still enjoy innocence Well, they didn't have to try to read into, is someone trying to manipulate me or is somebody trying to, you know, control me or control my thinking? Now, interestingly enough, this brings, you know, some interesting discussions from people. Well, if you're teaching your kids religion, you're brainwashing and controlling them. And yeah, I can see where people might think that. And yet at the same time, proper religion teaches individuals to take responsibility for themselves. It's not about, well, you're a victim and, you know, therefore you should just give up and let somebody else make all the decisions. It's more about you as an individual are accountable to God. And that's why you want to make the choices that will, you know, bring harmony between you and your creator. If there's one thing that I have disagreed with, and and sadly it, it took me a very long time to catch on to this, but I disagree with with the kind of parenting and the kind of religious instruction that that teaches fear and guilt as prime motivating factors. And I, I understand, you know, a lot of people were raised under that dynamic. I, My parents were both raised in fairly strict homes. And so when it came to, you know, religion, guilt was a big part of that. Time and, uh, you know, a, a bit of life experience has shown me that You know, guilt is not nearly as transformative as as we were led to believe when we were kids. And if there's one thing in my life that I have seen prompted the kinds of changes that I really needed to make, when there were times where I needed to alter course and and to become uh, more true to myself, in every instance it was love that prompted that uh, that desire to, to make the change. Fear, shame, anger, they might have temporarily deterred me from doing something, but they never brought about that desire to actually make a lasting change. And, and you know, with, at the risk of getting a little, little too personal here, I think the most amazing realization that, that I ever had regarding God was the understanding that uh, in spite of my failings, in spite of all of my um, imperfections, God loved me. He wasn't just sitting there, you know, shaking his head in anger and disgusted. Oh, what a screw-up you are. But that's the version of God that a lot of kids are raised with. So I guess what I'm pointing out here is let your kids have childhood. Let them enjoy innocence. And if you're going to introduce discipline, discipleship, self-control into their lives, try to help them understand that the reasons that these things matter is not because God's going to be angry with them, but because God loves them enough to want to see, to see them truly happy.
0: This is, the this is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, we are
1: back. so grateful that uh, you could join me today for the show i never know exactly you know how how big my audience is and frankly i don't care you know if this was all about numbers i would simply be saying things that everybody would agree with and nobody could possibly find offensive and that would affirm that yes yes you're right you're right and you know nobody should possibly disagree with you you are the most awesome of awesome cuz that's really what the masses want i'm not speaking to the masses I've learned through sad experience that uh, sometimes the M in the masses is silent. So, but I'm speaking to the people who are looking for credible, truthful, solid information on which they can gauge what the world around them is like, as well as, you know, giving them encouragement to, to stand up and be the kind of person that they were born to be, to make the difference they were born to make. And that seems like a pretty lofty goal, right? Oh, well, yes, we're all going to make a big difference in the world. But there's something that shifts in a person's mind once they make the connection that uh, I'm here for more than just, you know, earning a paycheck and buying stuff until I die. That's a narrative that deserves to be challenged. It's one that uh, deserves to be broken free of. So I love anybody who can, can help plant those seeds to get people thinking in more productive, more creative and more purposeful ways. Now, Isaac Morehouse is one of those individuals. I want to share with you an article he had back in January of this year. The last leg universities stand on is collapsing. The world of education is not what it used to be. And this, I think, is particularly timely, given how universities and you know many of these institutions of higher learning, they they are dedicated to um, anything but diversity in thought. I just was having a conversation with a young man yesterday who was writing an article about Harvard. And there was a professor who had written about, uh, I don't remember what exactly he'd read. This professor was black, grew up in, a, in poverty, grew up in a very disadvantaged household, and rose to the top of his, uh, his profession, does amazing economic research at Harvard, but something that he reported did not square with whatever the official narrative is of victimhood and, and social justice. And it had his, uh, his fellow faculty there at Harvard gunning for him to the point that they were actually they were, they were trying to convince university officials to strip him of his tenure. That's something they haven't done to somebody since the Civil War. And he kept his job, but now he's under the thumb and under direct supervision of one of those people who was trying to strip him of his of his tenure. So much for diversity of thought. All right, let's, let's see what Isaac Morehouse has to say. He says universities are dying. They long ceased being the best way of gaining knowledge. And more recently, he says the degrees they confer have ceased being the best way to signal employability. The only exception being jobs that legally require them. But such jobs are increasingly stodgy, unattractive, bureaucratic, backwards, and subservient to tyrannical governments. The final leg universities stand on is the mythology of social status. That's it. That's what gives them the waning, whatever waning power they have. Isaac Morehouse says, I can't count the number of parents I've talked with who recognize that college is one of the worst places to learn, and degrees are one of the weakest ways to try to get hired but who still needlessly bite the bullet and send their kid anyway. Often they shackle themselves or their children to tens of thousands in debt along the way. They despise the infantilizing policies on campus and bitter ideas in the classroom. They see the waste, corruption, stupidity, warped worldview, and bad habits cultivated and rewarded by the system. But they still send their kids. Why? Because they value the de- the decaying social status indicator of a degree. Isaac Morehouse says they want a shortcut to communicate to the world that they are good parents and their kids are better than most. Even when they know the college experience is not good for their kids, many go through with it because they panic. They don't know how to face other parents who ask what their kids are doing. They don't know how to deal with the social expectation among the masses that college is somehow respectable. He says, I can think of few things less respectable than unthinkingly going into debt to spend half a decade drinking and begrudgingly completing meaningless assignments for professors detached from the world. All so you can emerge with a piece of paper that does nothing to help you start a career and mindsets that make success harder. Now, he says, this doesn't mean that it's not possible for the college experience to be good or valuable or any of those things. The point is, almost no one seriously analyzes it. Almost no one sets out specific goals, examines the various ways to achieve them, and compares college to the relevant alternatives. Because only college confers the social praise of the self-appointed important people. He says, the priests of our cultural religion teach that you are not important without a degree. It's the equivalent of a blue check mark on Twitter. A self-serious symbol that turns out to be a better indicator of who is a fool or apologist for tyrants than who is a serious person. Now, as easy as it is to see the foolishness of university degrees as a status symbol from a distance, the spell the priests have cast over the past half-century remains powerful, even for those who should know better. Isaac Morehouse says, A college degree does not make you serious, important, or special in any way. It only proves that you were willing to follow the crowd. A dangerous prospect, especially lately, Now, universities are expecting or extending rather their absurdities to the bodily autonomy of their students. They're forcing students to cover their faces, swab their noses, present medical papers, or get injected with crony corporate concoctions they know little about. They're belittled and harassed in the process. The few joys, the few social joys of campus life are reduced while tuition is increased. And so he says now is the time to pull the last leg out from under the zombie corpse of college. He says, now is the time to break the spell cast by its priests and reject the idea that degrees make you matter. Now is the time to courageously unleash human creativity and imagination and engage in alternative educational, social, and career experiences. And here he really brings it home. There is a war for the mind, a war, for inform- a war of information, a war for control of human societies and cultures. This war requires you to believe the priests and accept the idea that the ivory tower is more important than you and those they slap a stamp of approval on more important than those who bypass the madness. He says the tyrannical individuals, policies and beliefs crippling the world today emanate from universities and the sphere of influence they enjoy. They continue to take your money and weaken young minds all while using their undue influence to make your life worse. And he says, don't accept it. Don't allow it. You can overcome the pernicious influence of experts by simply ignoring them and refusing to give them your money, attention, and children. Isaac Morehouse says, institutional paper doesn't matter. The life, ideas, and actions of individual humans do. He says, you're free to pursue life, learning, and career any way you choose, investing your time, money, and energy anywhere you wish. Do you want to empower the system that wishes to enslave you, or do you want to blaze a trail of freedom and show the world a better way? Can you see the shift in mindset there? Do you just want to check off the badges of compliance here? Okay, I did this, I did this, I did this. Now let me be a part of respectable society. I'm sorry. I know there are people who worked hard for their degrees and, and, and who often do a lot of good in their field, but... The general idea that Isaac Morehouse is pointing out here, I think, is absolutely on target. The system itself is all about showing compliance. You do this, and we'll reward you with this piece of paper that shows, you know, you have, you have passed through all of our portals of compliance. Well, Isaac Morehouse is one of the founders of Praxis. In fact, I think he is the founder. And Praxis offers an alternative for people who are seeking a career path. Young people who want to really do something—they're far less concerned with, "Well, can you show me your transcripts and what are your ACT scores and what's your uh, entry essay like?" You know, no. Praxis places young people in internships with companies that are looking for promising up-and-comers. And And you know what they ask for instead of, you know, the, the transcript or instead of a degree? Show me your portfolio. What have you done? What have you created? And you know, there are some brilliant minds out there. Young people who've created business plans or computer programs or apps or other innovations without even bothering to get a degree in the first place. If they can do the work... Why not let them enjoy the rewards of it? And these companies recognize the talent. They want to nurture that talent. They want to encourage that talent. So I guess the point here is you have alternatives. But you've got to be willing to step away from that, uh, that idea of status, you know, and appearing like, hey, I've got, uh, I've got the right status symbol here in this framed piece of paper on the wall. There may be respectable people in academia, but your prospects of a good life aren't dependent upon their approval.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show.
1: Hey, I have a little bit of good news to report. And this may seem like kind of a backward way to report the good news, but uh, I got two notifications from YouTube yesterday that uh, they were actively removing content on my show. When I post my show, I not only... Uh, i When I, I i broadcast it, I also post it on different podcast platforms, and I send it out across social media. But yes, YouTube is one of the platforms on which my show, the audio, goes. And uh, apparently it's a, it's a pretty viable platform for some folks. Well, I got a couple of notifications. In fact, let me let me just... I want to read one of these to you. Because I was actually pretty proud to, to receive this. I mean, it, to me, it just seemed like... I've earned this. Maybe it's been, been a little bit overdue. YouTube tells me that, uh, well, we have uh, removed your content. It says our team has reviewed your content, and unfortunately, we think it violates our medical misinformation policy. So we've removed the following content from YouTube, and uh, there were two dates. One was this year, one was September 7th of last year, huh, my wife's birthday. What do you know? We know this might be disappointing, but it's important to us that YouTube is a safe place for all. If content breaks our rules, we remove it. If you think we've made a mistake, you can appeal and we'll take another look. Keep reading for details. And uh, anyway, how the content violated their policy will apparently... YouTube does not allow content that spreads medical misinformation that contradicts local health authorities or World Health Organization medical information about COVID-19, including on methods to prevent, treat, or diagnose COVID-19 and means of transmission. So, bottom line is, I recently had received a strike for content on my channel. So, uh, since I'm already in a penalty period, they say we're not giving you another strike, but we've removed content from YouTube. Now, some people would be really disappointed about this. YouTube is the smallest platform on which I'm, I'm, you know, trying to get my show out there, so I'm not that worried. But uh, to to the YouTube fact checkers and to the ones who are sitting there doing the uh, review to see if I'm violating their their community rules, good luck, chumps. <laughs> if you're gonna go through all of my shows, I have. Oh, I don't know. I'm just looking at one platform here. I've got at least, uh, um, at least this this one has been, pla- has been posting to YouTube. You got at least 860 some odd shows. Maybe even more than that <laughs> that you're going to have to go through. Good luck. You're going to be busy. Have fun with it. Knock yourself out. I'm not going to, uh, I'm not going to give any you know, thought to to the idea that boy I should probably change what I'm speaking about and not to take the risk of offending them. I'm gonna to continue to speak things the way that I have been doing all along, and if you don't like it, well knock yourselves out. You're just giving me more credibility. You're just giving me the reinforcement that I need that all right, I must be actually over the target because I seem to be receiving some flack. All right, sorry. That that felt like a little bit of a flex, but I'm I'm just happy to see that uh, hey they're noticing. Well, that $5, gal- $5 a gallon gas is certainly a reality check, wouldn't you say? Aiden Tate from The Organic Prepper has an excellent article on Ernest Hemingway's experiences with hyperinflation that he encountered when he traveled to Germany back in the 1920s. Well, what can I learn from Ernest Hemingway? Well, check out how Aiden Tate puts it. He says, I'm not a big fan of Ernest Hemingway, never have been. I enjoyed the uh, old man in the sea, but found just about everything else he ever wrote to be depressing and without any sense of closure. A farewell to arms? For whom the bell tolls? Give me Mark Twain any day. He says, you can have the Hemingway. But a friend of mine likes Hemingway. And after talking with him a bit, I decided to give old Ernie another go. I picked up a copy of Byline, Ernest Hemingway by William White... And there were actually a number of things that Hemingway had to say about life in post-World War I Germany that I thought might be of interest to readers of The Organic Prepper. He says, While I knew Hemingway as a novelist, I wasn't familiar with the fact that he was a war correspondent for some time, spending years of his life traveling across the globe, covering various current events. In September 1922... Hemingway related the story to the Toronto star of an old man in Kiel, Germany, who likely had his life savings wiped out by the rampant inflation of the German mark. As a result, the man wasn't even able to afford to buy an apple. He also told the tale of a bakery in Kiel that was constantly swamped with Frenchmen. The French would travel across the border to take advantage of the incredibly low prices they would find in German restaurants due to German hyperinflation. The baker and his workers were sullen. Why? Because though they baked as fast as they could, their ovens were still unable to beat inflation. It didn't matter what they did. They were going to be screwed, and they knew it. And the end result would be their becoming men unable to afford a single apple. Now, Aiden Tate says one questions their wisdom by continuing to bake, but these were the kind of boots-on-the-ground stories of post-World War I Germany that he'd been looking for for so long, and Hemingway provided them, and Aidan Tate says, I was pleasantly surprised. In May of 1923, Hemingway returned to Germany once more, this time to Offenburg, Baden. Hyperinflation had hit Germany so hard by this point that Hemingway noted a glass of red wine now cost roughly the same as a night in the deluxe hotel he had stayed in just a year prior. German money had become largely worthless. But it wasn't just the German mark that was hit with inflation. Hemingway noted that the Russian ruble had seen the same, stating Russian money had been printed in million ruble denominations as fast as the presses could work in order to wipe out the value of the old imperial money and in consequence, the money holding class. In other words, inflation was created in early communist Russia with intent to wipe out savings. The first panacea for a mismanaged nation is inflation of the currency. The second is war. That's those are the words of Ernest Hemingway. by nineteen thirty five Hemingway was able to tell that war was on the way, and not a minor skirmish either. He saw war coming on the scale of the Great War. There were too many signs to think about to think otherwise. A growing angst and anger throughout Europe was most certainly part of what he saw. He was run out of parts of Germany during this time for being an outsider but it was the presence of inflation that caused him to see the dark clouds on the horizon. Military strategy is inseparable from economic strategy, he would say, in 1941. The two, war and inflation, were tightly linked together. And Hemingway knew this. And from this, he says, I believe that we too can learn that one can look at the greater world around us and come to conclusions. What do we see? Are the symptoms of war beginning to show themselves? Can we foretell the logical conclusions of the events we see play out around us on a daily basis? Well, Hemingway thought so. And he used this belief to read the world around him to tell what he saw coming. And at least in the occurrence of World War Two, Hemingway was right. So, as Hemingway noted, war often follows inflation, and he had a particular view of war that uh, that Aidan Tate says he greatly enjoyed. No one man nor group of men incapable of fighting or exempt from fighting should in any way be given the power, no matter how gradually it is given to them, to put this country or any country into war. That's hard to argue with that, is it not? It's akin to an old man picking a fight with a burly hell's angel in a bar and then sending his grandson in to fight for him. Aiden Tate says, I would say that the founding fathers largely agreed with this concept. The system of checks and balances they created with the American system of government, when followed, serve as a great means of keeping people from being able to arbitrarily decree a state of war. No European country is our friend, nor has been since the last war, and no country but one's own is worth fighting for. And these are the words of Ernest Hemingway. Now, he was a bit of a a hypocrite here. He did fight in the Spanish Civil War. But the above words echo what George Washington had to say in his farewell address. Why get involved in the entanglements of other nations? The Monroe Doctrine, where America stayed out of the affairs of Europe and refused to let them mess with the affairs in the Western Hemisphere, worked very well, until World War I anyway. So, Aidan Tate concludes, in short, I'm still not a fan of Hemingway's novels. Reading an anthology of his didn't change my mind in that regard, but, he says, I did appreciate his having written down the historical events that he lived through. There are lessons to be learned here if we're willing to look close. And we best learn them while we can. On that note, he links to some tips for surviving hyperinflation. So I hadn't thought about that. Now now it makes me want to kind of dust off, you know, and and see what I can learn from from Ernest Hemingway. Not so much from the novels, but maybe from, you know, some of his uh, observations and writings as he traveled. I think this is one of the reasons why it's so valuable for you and me to uh, to take the time to write about what's going on in our worlds. Yes, I'm talking about journaling. I'm talking about keeping a record of the things that we're experiencing. We like to think about, you know, the here and now. This is, uh, this is where what matters is taking place, and you're right in that sense. But I think we'd also want to be farsighted enough to realize that there are going to be people who will follow in our footsteps it may be grandkids it may be great-grandchildren it might be 300 years down the road someone is going to want to read about your experiences and what you learned from them
0: why not give them the benefit of what you actually lived through this is the brian hyde show